Good evening, church. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you. And if you are new tonight, we are working our way through Matthew's gospel, and we happen to be at this quite controversial and difficult passage. Tonight, I'm going to speak on uh, marriage, on singleness, and on divorce. And I I speak with some trepidation, to be honest, uh, because everybody here has been impacted by marriage, singleness, and divorce. And my fear is I'm going to press every button possible. Some of us here are single, and some of us here tonight are struggling with being single. We're struggling with loneliness, uh, with the hurt of a broken relationship, or just this longing, this desire to be, to be married. And so when I talk about singleness, that is hard to hear. Some of us here tonight are, are married, and some of us here are, are in happy, healthy marriages, and some of us here are, are in difficult marriages. Our, our marriages are loveless, they are distant, they're difficult. And so when I talk about marriage, that's hard to hear. And some of us here are divorced. There are people here tonight who are divorced not by your choice. And you're hurting. And to make matters worse, your hurt has been exacerbated by the church. The way you've been treated by the church as a divorced person has been despicable. I know of a man at this church who was a leader in another church. And when his wife walked out on him at the other church... He said he felt like he contracted a, a disease because people in that church, they, they, they kind of cut him off and they kept him at a distance and they were aloof. He stopped being invited to events and he was asked not to lead and that is terrible. Uh, some of us here are divorced and you feel guilty. Every time you walk into a church, you, you're wracked with guilt and with shame. Some of us here are angry about divorce because your parents divorced and the impact that had on you, it scarred you. You're angry at friends who got divorced. You're angry at friends who didn't support you in your divorce. And my point is there's a whole cocktail of emotions in this church tonight. And so on this topic, I don't want to speak lightly or glibly. You know, churches write papers and policies on on marriage, on divorce, and on remarriage. And it's right and important that we think carefully on these topics. But please remember, behind every paper is a person. A real person with a real story. And it's often a story of hurt, brokenness, and betrayal. So please forgive me if anything I say tonight is spoken in a wrong tone, or it triggers you in any way. I feel like I need to apologize for the way that Christians have talked about divorce and they've made people feel guilty and condemned and judged and shamed. I want to say sorry for the way that the church has treated divorce like a a theological exercise, not a lived experience. I want to apologize for the way the church has sometimes, sometimes persuaded people to, 
stay in an abusive marriage for way, way, way too long. There's a lady at our church now who, she was in an abusive marriage, and when she was dating this man, the, the man with, was beautifully protective. But when they married, that protection became controlling, and that control became abusive. Emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, financial abuse. And when it turned into physical abuse, she finally plucked up the courage to, to walk out of that house. And she went to her pastor at the time, and the pastor at the time told her to, to forgive and to work hard at reconciliation. And that was damaging and dangerous. I'm sorry if you're here tonight as a divorced person who have experienced that kind of damaging and dangerous advice. So I want to talk about marriage, divorce, and singleness. And I'm not an expert. Trust me, I'm not an expert. I am, if you don't know me, I am married. I've been married for almost 14 years. I'm married to Rachel. We have five boys. The eldest is 18 and the youngest is one. If that confuses you, I married a widow with a five-year-old. And so my wife, Rachel, understands marriage and then the pain of singleness again after marriage. I was single till I was 40, and so I do understand some of the struggles of singleness. Uh, my sister's been divorced twice and been in countless abusive relationships, and I've walked literally along thousands of people through marriage divorce, and singleness. But it's not about me and my wisdom. It's actually about the Scriptures and what the Bible says. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, and let's see what Jesus says on this topic. Chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus had finished saying these things. And so he's talked in chapter 18 about humility and holiness and a heart for forgiveness. And we're told in verse 1, he left Galilee. So he's heading for the final time down towards Jerusalem, towards his death. And verse 2, large crowds followed Jesus as they often did, and, and Jesus healed them because he was full of compassion. But, but verse 3 is the key. We're introduced to these Pharisees, to these religious teachers, to the Bible scholars. And we're told in verse 3 that they came to Jesus to to test him. See that word? To test him. That's their motivation. They, they wanted to trap Jesus, to, to ensnare Jesus, to trick Jesus. They didn't like Jesus, so they're out to get him. And there were loads of issues they could have trapped Jesus on, but they chose the issue of divorce because it was a hot topic then as it is now. And they asked a question in verse, they said, they, said, they said to Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus, is it right that we can just get divorced easily? Now let me give you the background to that question. At the time of Jesus, there, was, there were two main schools of thought. There was the, the high bar conservative rabbis led by Rabbi Shammai. And, and, and that conservative view was that divorce was only ever possible if there was a high level in moral sin. 
And then there was the, the second school of thought, which was the, the low-bar liberal rabbis, led by Rabbi Hillel. And they said that divorce was possible for any and every reason. If you just didn't like her anymore, then just send her away. And they're the two schools of thought in Jesus' day, the, the conservative view and the liberal view, and nothing really has changed. And the Pharisees are very clever with that question. Because if Jesus sided with the conservatives, then they say, look, Jesus, you're opposing Moses. Let's treat Jesus like we treated John the Baptist because he was, he was beheaded because of his views on divorce. But if Jesus sided with the liberals, they'd say, oh, Jesus, you're, you're licensing people to sin. And so they're trying to trap him. And they think they're very clever. But I love Jesus' answer in verse 4. He says, haven't you read? Come on, guys, you're the Bible teachers. You're the Bible scholars. Surely you spent countless hours pouring over the Scriptures on this issue because that's the basis of your conclusion, the Word of God, isn't it? Not your rabbinical thinking, but the Word of God. And I reckon Jesus was pretty good at sarcasm. Haven't you read? And it's fascinating because Jesus doesn't actually address their question on divorce as such. He talks about marriage. So if you've got a pen and a church Bible, just pick up your pen and cross out that stupid NIV heading called divorce. That is profoundly unhelpful. This is not about divorce. This is about marriage. And it touches on divorce and singleness. Let me start with a, a pastoral word on marriage, a pastoral word on marriage. Because I hope you know that marriage is in crisis today. There's a, a crisis in our culture over that word marriage. But more than that, more than the word marriage, there's a crisis in the way that we view marriage because we are obsessed with what I call me-centered marriages. People are out there looking for the, the perfect soulmate. Someone who, quote, is completely compatible, low maintenance, intellectually stimulating, physically attractive, emotionally supportive to me. And marriage becomes all about my personal happiness and my personal fulfillment. And if I'm not happy and not fulfilled, then I'll just walk away. That's the crisis in marriage today. So I want to look at God's intention for marriage. Let me be clear here. I'm talking tonight about biblical marriage. I'm not talking about a civil cultural or governmental contract or construct. I'm looking about what the Bible says about marriage. I'm not going to go into open marriages and gay marriage and plural marriages. That's a, a whole new topic. But please remember that marriage predates any legal system, any church, any religion, or any politics. So how does God define marriage? Because he created it so he can define it. And Jesus says in verse 4, haven't you read that at the beginning, let, let, let's go back beyond the legal stuff, beyond the law of Moses, let's go back to creation. And I love that, that Jesus doesn't argue from traditions or modern practices or personal experience. He goes back to the origin of marriage, to God himself, to God's design at creation. And almost everything I'm about to say in verses 4 to 6 is sadly controversial to our culturally shaped ears. Verse 4, he says, Haven't you heard that 
At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Male and female, so two genders. Now, I'm not talking here about gender dysphoria. That's a whole new topic. But God's design was man and woman, male and female. And neither is inferior, neither is superior. They're both made in the image of God, so equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in salvation. But men and women are not identical. They are to complement each other. So back in Genesis 2, we read it was not good for man to be alone. And please understand that verse. God is not saying, poor Adam, he's so lonely, so I think I need to get him married. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the problem isn't loneliness. The problem is a lack of a helper to work in the garden alongside him to do life in God's world together. And so the animals don't cut it, so God created a woman, not, not a harem of women, but, but one woman. And I find it interesting that God, God didn't create a, a parent-child relationship with someone superior and someone inferior. He created in his wisdom a man and a woman to complement each other in marriage, to work the land together, to serve God together. And that is so important because, listen carefully, marriage is not God's provision to meet all your relational needs. That's called friendship. And marriage is not created to gaze forever into each other's eyes. Marriage is created to, to serve God together, to, to work the land together, to do life together. And so biblical marriage is one man and one woman. And marriage is a new family, a new unit. Verse 5. And God said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He doesn't say leave your wife and be united to your father and mother again. He says leave your, leave your parents. So, so if you're married, marriage means leaving your parents. Not just physically, but, but it, leaving them emotionally. So much damage is done in marriages by a spouse who is over-dependent on a parent or a parent who is over-involved in a marriage. If you are married, your husband-wife relationship is your primary relationship. And you're a new unit, a new family. You, you don't become a family if and when you have children. As a married couple, you are a new unit with commitment, trust, faithfulness, and friendship. Verse 5, united to his wife so they can pray together and play together. And you're seen by society as a new family. That, that's why the public aspect of marriage is so important. That public ceremony is, is a protective measure. It protects you against being coerced into marriage that you don't want to enter. It protects you against polygamy. And it's informative to say to everyone, look, we are now a separate unit, a new family. And we're one flesh, verse 5. The two will become one flesh. It's like they're glued together. Now, now one flesh... It is sexual intimacy. Of course it is. But it's not just sex. Sex is the, the physical expression of the one flesh reality. As soon as you stand in church and say, I will or I do, you become one flesh. One physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. So when one hurts, the other hurts. When one sins, the other feels it. You're glued together. So the expectation is, listen carefully, is faithful monogamy. You can't go gluing yourself to many different people. 
And so the concept of an open marriage is just a bizarre concept. You're one flesh to serve God together, to grow in grace together. And again, listen carefully, that, that one flesh union, it should mean, it should mean that, it's, that you are safe, that you can be completely vulnerable with each other and be completely safe. Genesis 2, they were both naked and felt no shame. And then marriage, verse 6, is supposed to be permanent. Verse 6, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. I say that at every single wedding. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Because God has joined you together. So in my marriage, it's not just me and Rachel, it's me, Rachel, and God. Because, God, because marriage is not just a human bond, it's a divine bond. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. A contract can be easily broken, but, but a covenant that God makes, it shouldn't be broken. Now, you, you can't tear apart what God has joined together without expecting some pain. So that's marriage. And in answer to the, the Pharisee's question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The answer is, is no, of course it's not for any and every reason. Because God has joined these two people together. Now, church, I want to encourage us to, to uphold our marriages in this church. To uphold the sanctity of marriage, the beauty of marriage. The bar should be high. In the marriage ceremony, I say these words in the prayer book. Marriage should not be entered into lightly or carelessly but with reverence and with proper respect. So don't enter marriage lightly and don't end it flippantly. If you're here tonight at 7 p.m. and you are married, can I urge you to, to be devoted to your spouse, to cherish your spouse, to honor your spouse? If you're a husband here tonight, the Bible is very clear as a husband, you're your role is to love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. Your role is to live such a sacrificial life for your wife, to put her needs above your needs, to love her selflessly. If you're a wife here tonight, your role is to respect your husband, not to undermine him or to belittle him. But husbands, you can't say, oh, my wife doesn't respect me unless you are loving her sacrificially and laying down your life for her. And if you're longing to be married, you're not just trying to find someone you find beautiful. You're, you're looking for a life partner to do life and ministry in this world together, to be committed to each other for life. Can we pray for our marriages? At, I mean, 2024 is a year of spiritual renewal. It would be great if you were married to say, for 2024, can we work on our marriage, enrich our marriage? That's marriage. Let me talk about divorce. My goal here is to speak with, with care and with sensitivity and with kindness. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore, do we? Our world is broken. Our world is full of sin and shame and suffering, and we live in a world where we, we hurt each other and we harm each other, and there's pain, and part of that pain is divorce. You know that 50% of marriages fail. 
And I can guarantee there's nobody in this room tonight over the age of 20 who, who hasn't been impacted by divorce in some way. Parents, friends, siblings, children. So the Pharisees are not satisfied with Jesus' answer, and they, they push him to dig deeper, verse 7. They say, Jesus, why then did Moses command a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're saying, Jesus, didn't Moses command divorce to happen? Now, is that right? Did Moses really command divorce? Of course he didn't. And the Pharisees do what religious people do very cleverly. They, they take a verse of Scripture and they misquote it. And they're actually referencing Deuteronomy 24, which was the passage that we had read tonight. But let me explain what Deuteronomy actually says. The, the law in Deuteronomy was actually given, listen very carefully, to, to seek the protection of women. That's why the law was given. Moses brought in his regulations, so if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he had to issue a certificate of divorce because terrible things were happening to wives. Terrible injustices were happening to wives at that time. Men were treating their wives like property. If they weren't happy with the wife, they would send her away. I mean, the word divorce means send her away. And interestingly, there's no opposite of to send him away. It was all one-sided at that time. And, and so the women were being divorced and being discarded for the most frivolous reasons. I'm no longer attracted to her, so send her away. She's beginning to annoy me, so send her away. I'm not happy anymore, so send her away. She's become naggy and saggy, so send her away. She's burnt the toast, so send her away. And we can laugh, but actually, it was devastating. Because as men sent their wives away, without a certificate of divorce, those wives were left destitute, impoverished, shamed, and called adulterers. So the whole point of the law in Deuteronomy is to protect women. Moses is saying, you have to issue a certificate of divorce. You can't just toss her out like a rag doll. So Moses did not command divorce or even encourage divorce. No, he permitted it, verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Your hearts were selfish and rebellious and self-centered, and you were driven by your desires, so we permitted it. But, says Jesus, verse 8, it was not this way from the beginning. He says, God did not create divorce. Human beings created divorce. Our failings, our brokenness, our depravity. It wasn't this way from the beginning. Before sin entered the world, there was no divorce. Because divorce is always the result of someone's sin. Now, don't mishear me there. There are innocent parties in divorce, but divorce is always a consequence of somebody's bad behavior. So here's the million-dollar question. Is it ever okay to break the marriage covenant? Is it ever okay to get divorced? 
And Jesus does not talk about personal incompatibility or poor communication or different worldviews or falling out of love. But he does give an allowance in verse 9. He said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So there's the exception. It's called sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness. The word there is porneia. It's a, a broad word, but a sexual unfaithfulness word. And he's saying if one spouse has been sexually unfaithful, then that, that covenant has already been broken. That glue has been ripped apart. So there's grounds for divorce there. But, but listening very carefully, adultery means that divorce is permissible and possible, but not required. Not commanded. I mean, God is a God of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And I've had the, the privilege of walking alongside many, many couples who have lived through this experience where there's been adultery and it's been really hard, but they have learned to forgive and to trust again. And there's been beautiful reconciliation. Having said that, reconciliation is sometimes not possible. Because it's not just a broken covenant, it's a broken trust. And sometimes there's no repentance, just, just sadness or remorse. So there's, there's the allowance of adultery. But here's the big question. Is, is that the only grounds for divorce? And Christians disagree on it, but, but I personally would say, no, that's not the only grounds for divorce. Because Jesus is responding to a specific question about rabbinical law, and we can't just take this one passage. We've got the whole of the rest of Scriptures. There's an allowance of adultery in Matthew chapter 19, but if you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, there's an allowance for what's called um, abandonment. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances God has called us to live in peace. And so the Bible says that if you're a Christian and you're married to an unbeliever, and if the unbeliever wants to leave you, you're not bound, you're free. It's okay to divorce. So you've got the allowance of adultery, you've got the allowance of abandonment, and I would add the allowance of neglect. Because I do think that Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11 speaks into this. It allows for divorce on the grounds of neglect. If your spouse is neglecting to care for you and provide for your basic necessities of food and clothing and water, I mean, you've vowed to love and to cherish, but you've broken that vow. You've neglected the basic necessities. And I would argue that abuse fits into this category because you're not safe. It's not that you're just not being provided for materially, but you're being harmed. You're being harmed physically and emotionally and sexually. And I do not believe that God wants you to remain in a harmful, unsafe relationship. Now, too often people in abusive marriages, all they hear from the church is forgive, 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 70 times 7. Now, sometimes the best thing, the safest thing, is to remove yourself from that unsafe environment. Now, I'm not saying it will always lead to divorce. 
Sometimes you can have a long-term separation. And sometimes when you're separated, the, the abuser miraculously does change. But to be honest, from my experience, that doesn't often happen. If you're here tonight and you have divorced out of an abusive relationship, please don't be wracked by guilt or shame. God does not want you to suffer abuse. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not lowering the bar for marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing. We should do everything possible to honor it. But I don't think abuse is honoring a marriage, do you? Let me have a tough word. If you're here tonight and you are the abuser, if you're here tonight and you're treating your spouse in a really, really godless, evil way, if you're abusing them emotionally, physically, sexually, financially, can I urge you to stop and to change? Can I urge you to pray for the Holy Spirit to change you? Because your behavior is wrong. You are not loving your spouse. And if you're a victim of abuse here tonight, you do not need to stay under the same roof of that person who is abusing you. It's okay to go. And if you're here today as anybody who's been divorced, as a divorcee, I think you need to hear these words from me. It is that you are welcome, that you are loved, that you are cherished and cared for and forgiven. Because divorce is not the unforgivable sin. A word on singleness. And again, I know this is profoundly painful for many here, people here tonight. It's funny, isn't it, that singleness in society is just normal. <laughs> but you walk to church and you feel abnormal in your singleness. Let me speak personally. When I was single, I felt some of these tensions. When I was single, I felt the the self-expectation. I, I expected to be married by 30 with kids. I felt the family pressures. And every time I spoke to my mum or my family members, like, oh, are you still single? Oh, you make a great husband someday. As there's nothing wrong with me. As a single person, you feel that pressure. You, know, you dread Christmas as a single person because you either go to you know, Christmas alone or some random house for Christmas. And holidays in your 30s as a single person is really, really difficult. But the biggest pressure I felt was church pressure, even as a pastor. It felt like as a church, we, we celebrated every time someone started to date and every time someone got married, like, whoa, amazing. As though marriage is the goal, as marriage is the end point that we're all aiming for. And you talked about that gift of singleness, like a, a jab at the dentist that no one really likes. But in my mid-30s, if I'm honest, this is the honest truth. In my mid-30s, I changed. I was content in singleness. I really was. 
and I started to date Rachel, I had this dreadful line. I said, I had to consider giving up my singleness. <laughs> but it was true. Because I was truly content. I was very thankful to be single and all the opportunities it gave me for life and for deep friendships and for ministry. And I'd found my security in Christ. And I, and I love verse 10. When the disciples turned to Jesus and said, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. They're saying, Jesus, this is all too hard. All this marriage stuff is too hard. The bar is too high. There's, there's way too much commitment. It's like the disciples were these commitment-phobic men with their list of possible questions. Now, what if the person changes after I get married? What if I fall in love with somebody else? What if it's no fun anymore? And Jesus said in verse 11, well, not everyone can accept this word. Not everyone can remain unmarried. And that's okay. But only those to whom it's been given. So God does give some people the ability to be single. And Jesus identifies three different groups of people. He calls them eunuchs, people who are incapable of marriage. He says there are people who are born that way. So some people are born with congenital defects, so they're just not physically possible of being married. Some people are born with certain conditions. That means they're not capable of a heterosexual intercourse or a committed relationship. Some people were made that way, he says in verse 12. Some people, life circumstances, nurture, they were the, the victims in some way. It could have been their upbringing, but things happen to you in life which made it impossible for you to commit to a marital relationship. But others, verse 12, made themselves that way. This is the one that we struggle with, verse 12. There are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are people who actively choose to not get married for the sake of the kingdom of God to devote more time to mission and to ministry. And I think of my friend Roseanne Jones, who is serving the Lord in Japan. She chose to be single. And Dick Lucas, he chose to be single. Or one of my heroes of the faith, John Stott, he chose to be single. Actually, he didn't quite choose it. John Stott says this, in spite of rumors to the contrary, I've never taken a solemn vow or heroic decision to remain single. On the contrary, during my 20s and 30s, like most people, I was expecting to marry one day. In fact, during this period, I twice began to develop a relationship with a lady who I thought might be God's choice of a life partner for me. But when the time came to make a decision, I can best explain it by saying that I lacked an assurance from God that, that God meant me to go forward. So I drew back. And when that happened twice, I began to believe that God meant for me to remain single. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I think I know why. I could never have traveled or written as extensively as I have done if I had the responsibilities of a wife and a family. And that is true. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you are married, you have additional responsibilities. You have a wife, you have some kids, you have a husband, you have some kids, and you can't be as devoted, single-minded to the Lord as you can if you're single. And I can testify to that. You know, I, there's no way that I could have done the things that I did 20 years ago if I'd been married. I, I, I was meeting with guys 
to read the Bible at 6.30 a.m. at 9 p.m., five days of the week. I don't think I could have planted the Bridge Church 20 years ago if I'd been married the way, the way that I did. Now, don't miss him. I love being married. I love Rachel. I love my kids. But it's different now. It's right that I care for my wife and my boys as well as care for the church, but I'm not able to do the things I, I could do as a single person. Friends, singleness is not a disease. It's not a virus. It's not something that you need to be cured from. Singleness is good. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus was single. Paul was single. The great evangelist John Chapman was single. He said this, My friends used to take me for long walks around the park, telling me how important it was I should get married. Some even suggested my ministry would be adversely affected by not marrying. It would have been a great help if my friends had bothered to read the Bible. Because <laughs> read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said it is good to remain single. Now, not everybody can do that, but please don't idolize marriage. They're like flies at the window. Some are trying to get in, some are trying to get out. Don't idolize it. Marriage does bring pain and heartache and troubles and trials. Now, please, I'm not trying to minimize any pain. I, I do understand the pain of singleness. I really do. If you are single here tonight, can I encourage you to live your single life as best you can to the honor and glory of God? And if you're married here tonight, can I urge us not to pity the unmarrieds? Please don't always talk about when you are married as though that is always the goal of life. So whether we are married, whether we are single, whether we are divorced, my point is really simple. That Jesus knows exactly the position in life that you are in right now. And Jesus knows it, and Jesus is committed to you, and Jesus will never walk out on you like some human beings do or have done. And Jesus is always there, even when nobody else is there for you. And Jesus knows you and sees you and cares for you, and he loves you deeply. I'm aware, friends, that what I've said tonight could have triggered things for, for some or many people. If it's, if it's trigger stuff for you tonight, please don't leave here without talking to me or to Betsy or to Justin or to somebody or to Ellie. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. But let's uphold our marriages. Let's love and care for anybody here who's been divorced. And let's embrace singleness. Whatever position you are in life, live your life now for the glory and the honor of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your deep love for us. I want to pray now for anybody who is in relational pain. For anybody here tonight who is struggling with a broken relationship, a broken marriage, a difficult, distant marriage. 
or just a longing for marriage. And I invite you, Lord Jesus, to be present with these people in an intimate way that they would know your comfort and your care. I feel need to pray for anybody here tonight who is in an, in an abusive relationship. Father, would you change the behavior? And would you, Lord, please give courage to people to step away? Thank you, Father, that you care for us deeply. So please minister to our souls today.